You're probably wondering why we've started the podcast with a song from the 80s, Culture Club, Boy George, Church of the Poison Mind. I'll explain that in just a moment. I'm Pastor Sean Cole, your host of Understanding Christianity. I'm glad you've chosen to listen today. I'm the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church. I also serve as an adjunct professor at Colorado Christian University. And growing up in the 80s as a teenager, I have to admit that I did like Boy George and Culture Club, and I was a big fan, but uh, have, have nothing to say about the fact that this song has, has nothing to do with anything that's theologically accurate. And so the reason why I play the song to begin with, Church of the Poison Mind, is that I want to ask a very fundamental question on today's podcast, and that is simply this. What is the mission and identity of the church? There's a lot of confusion in our world today, in our evangelical world, about the church's mission, about the the church's identity, and really it's an issue of ecclesiology. Now, ecclesiology is just a big word that basically means a study of the church, And, and I believe in our current evangelical landscape, there is a lot of confusion about the nature of the church, the purpose of the church, the identity of the church, the mission of the church. And and so I would say we have an identity crisis in the American evangelical church as to what the church is, what the church does. And so I want to begin by sharing seven, what I think are seven big categorical diseases. And I, and I call these diseases that actually plague the church. And so if you look around at the landscape today and you and maybe you even want to evaluate your own church and you look at the evangelical church in America today, what are some diseases, some things that are plaguing the church today that have have really contributed to a faulty or a sub-biblical or maybe even a non-biblical view of how the church views itself and what the church's mission is. And so the first big categorical disease that I would say is pragmatism. Pragmatism. Now let me just give you a definition of what pragmatism is. Pragmatism can be summed up with this. If it works, no matter what it is, as long as it works, let's do it because all we care about are the results. That's what pragmatism is. It says that we're, the the bottom line is that we want results, we want numbers, and so we're going to do no matter what, as long as it works. So there's no discernment as far as if it's biblical, if it's glorifying to God. And so some examples of pragmatism that you see today are the seeker, what I would call the seeker-sensitive churches. Uh, Churches that don't talk about the cross, churches that don't talk about sin, uh, churches that are really focused on having their entire worship service centered around how they're going to make things comfortable for a lost person when they walk in. And so I really don't want to name drop, but I will because I think it's important for you as my listener to understand some of the key players in uh, these different types of movements. And so one of the big key players right now, I believe, and he's very, very popular, has one of the largest churches in America, and that's Andy Stanley. Andy Stanley is a pastor of a mega church in Georgia, and uh, he's basically the, the brainchild behind the Catalyst Conference. And, and so Andy Stanley is driven by pragmatism. It's very interesting. He was asked a couple years ago about um, expository preaching. 
which is the type of preaching that I believe is the most biblical. And, and this is what Andy Stanley's answer was. He says, quote, guys that preach verse by verse through books of the Bible, that is just cheating. It's cheating because that would be easy, first of all. That isn't how you grow people. No one in the scripture modeled that. There's not one example of that. Now, I would beg to differ with his conclusions there. You can go back to listen to one of my uh, earlier podcasts on what is biblical preaching, where I address the fact that we do see expository preaching modeled in the scriptures itself, but he is driven by pragmatism. I want to tell you a sad story. When I was uh, about two summers ago, uh, I was taking one of my doctoral seminars in expository preaching at Southern Seminary, and, and we had to watch. Unfortunately, our, our, our professor wanted to expose us to a lot of different methods and models of, of different types of preaching, and we had to actually watch a sermon from Andy Stanley. And I, and I never really listened to him or watched him. And, and my professor said that he did not even cherry pick this sermon. He just went and found the first sermon um, on, on the sermon feed on the website and, and showed that to us. And I was very, very disappointed. Basically, what Andy Stanley did was, for 30 minutes, he stood up and gave conventional wisdom on uh, on issues that are like chicken soup for the soul and, and things that were basically just normal uh, words of wisdom and, and didn't use any scripture didn't open his bible and as a matter of fact said um, you know if you have you know if you have problems with the bible that's okay we're not that big about opening up our bibles here don't feel uncomfortable and then at the very end he tagged on Romans 8:28 used it out of context and basically ended the sermon uh, with that scripture so he talked for almost 40 for 45 minutes minutes without even opening his Bible and was giving conventional wisdom because I guess in his mind that doesn't work. And so the the first big categorical disease that I think is plaguing the church is pragmatism. This whole idea is if it works, no matter what it is that works, we're going to do it because all we care about are the results. Now there is another big categorical disease that I think is plaguing the church and that is number two, what I would call mysticism. Mysticism is basically the idea that it's, it's all about looking inside of me for answers to spiritual issues. It, it's it caught up in the, the quote-unquote supernatural mysticism. Uh, some examples of this would be contemplative prayer, centering prayer, cr a Christian yoga, what was popular about 10, 15 years ago, labyrinths. You see people like Sid Roth on It's Supernatural where he, he talks about teleportation and all of these weird mystical experiences that the church wants to get involved in. And there's a lady that I think is actually pretty hilarious and her name's Patricia King. Uh, she's the self-proclaimed prophetess that... Um, talks about all types of crazy things. And, and I oftentimes listen to Chris Rosebro's uh, Fighting for the Faith podcast. And a few days ago, uh, he was covering her where she was on her way to preach a sermon at this conference or at this church, which it's in and of itself is a problem to have a, a woman preaching. But um, supposedly, uh, God had not given her a word. And so she had gone unprepared. She didn't, And obviously, she didn't spend time in expositional study and exegesis to figure out what the text meant. And so she was going to this preaching event without a word from the Lord. And as she was driving down the road, she sees this billboard about you know painting your valley purple. 
Purple Valley or something like that. And so she claimed that God told her that that's what you need to preach about. Preach about claiming your Purple Valley. And she went on and gave this whole sermon about this Purple Valley. And so that is mysticism, getting these special words from God and looking inside ourselves for these quote-unquote supernatural spiritual experiences to somehow drive what we do. And it's often devoid of anything related to the scriptures. It's, there's not a belief in scripture alone. A scripture is not sufficient. There's this mysticism. And so I think that's the second big categorical disease that's plaguing the church. Number three, Gnosticism. Now, Gnosticism was an ancient heresy that crept up in about the second century that really believed in, in secret knowledge. That's really what the word Gnosticism is. It comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. But modern-day Gnosticism is really this whole idea that, that I've got secret knowledge... And I want to give you this secret knowledge that you've never, ever heard before. And I'm going to give you some type of new teaching, some new spiritual uh, spirituality that will help you because I've got the key. And you just got to tap into what I've discovered. And again, it's often devoid of anything related to the scriptures. And so one big example today is Sarah Young's book, Jesus Calling. Jesus Calling is a book that she has written where supposedly Jesus spoke directly to her and she wrote a devotional about what Jesus revealed to her. Um, I remember about 15 years ago, uh, the prayer of Jabez that came out where this is the secret formula that you can pray this that, that's not been discovered for the past 2,000 years. And if you just pray the prayer of Jabez, you will have these great things happen in your life. Uh, you often see it in the word faith movement where a certain... Um, televangelist has the key, the secret knowledge, and if you just give to his ministry or you just tap into his secret teaching, you'll have this newfound knowledge that nobody else has. You really see this a lot of times in what I would call hyper-dispensationalism. You see it in people like Perry Stone and other prophecy teachers who somehow have this knowledge that nobody else has been able to tap into, and so you need to watch their program, and, and they're going to give you the secret keys, the secret knowledge that's been hidden for all these years, but somehow they have discovered. And so that's called Gnosticism. And so I think that's the third categorical disease that's plaguing the modern church today. Uh, number four, this is a term I think I've, I've, I've coined or made up. I don't know if anybody else has used it, but I call it psychotherapeutism. Psychotherapeutism, taking two words together, psychology and therapy. Um, it's this whole idea that the church or God exists to address my felt needs, my self-esteem. It borrows a lot from the, the world of psychology, psychobabble, therapy. Everything's about me feeling better about myself and having my best life now. And I think the poster child for this would be Joel Osteen. Uh, Joel Osteen is basically, you know, has the largest church in America, Lakewood Church down in Houston. And his whole message, and basically it's the same thing over and over again, God wants you to be happy. God wants you to succeed. I'm going to tap into how you can feel better about yourself. Every day's a Friday. Have your best life now. Uh, this whole therapy of making you feel better about your felt needs and your self-esteem and, and borrowing from the world of, of psychology and psychobabble. Okay, so that's number four. Number five, and I have to be a little careful about this because I think this is a little bit closer to my camp. It's not as far out there, but I, I would call it number five, revivalism. 
Obviously not revival. We, we want to pray for God to bring revival and reformation to our churches. But there's a difference between revivalism and revival. Revivalism is basically this whole idea of using manipulative techniques, techniques or man-centered theology to produce evangelistic results. And so you often see um, evangelistic crusades. You see... Um, evangelist and you see manipulative uses of the altar call to somehow generate results that um, you know we can brag about who came to the altar and how many people got saved uh, I think of one famous Southern Baptist I won't mention his name but he's a famous Southern Baptist evangelist he was a pastor of a of a church um, back in the 80s who had astronomical growth uh, now he has a um, evangelistic ministry and you know he basically says he can guarantee so many souls a month if you give money to his ministry and that you go to some of these evangelistic websites where these revivalists or these evangelists especially in southern baptist life um, basically if you follow their formula if you follow their program they can guarantee results and it's often, um, you know, use of the sinner's prayer, the uh, altar calls, a lot of um, techniques to get big crowds of people to make decisions for Christ. And you see this whole type of revivalism. And oftentimes what it produces is a lot of times it produces false converts. Um, it really preys upon people's emotions. And you, you probably see this more in the deep south. Here in Colorado, we don't, we don't really don't see this at all. Um, I think out here in the West, um, because we're such a non-church culture, uh, these types of old revivalistic methods really don't work, and most people have abandoned them out here. But I think maybe in the Deep South, where there's still a culture uh, of, of this whole ultra call revivalistic mentality. But I think it's it's really, if you talk to brothers and sisters down in the Deep South, they can tell you how this type of mentality has done a lot of harm. Um, number six is what I would call consumerism. Uh, consumerism basically says we need to keep the customer happy or the churchgoer happy, so let's give them what they want. So everything in church life is driven by making the customer happy, making them come back. And so really what you end up having is all of these compartmentalized departments in the church to meet the different consumeristic needs of the consumer. And so uh, when a family goes to church, instead of worshiping together as a family, you break them up into segments and the children go to this building and the youth go to this building and the adults go to this building. And you have all these different uh, support groups where, where nobody really comes together as a unified church family. Uh, there's no um, intermingling of generations where uh, the senior adults can mingle with uh, children. And, and there's this whole idea that we want to compartmentalize people because we want to, uh, like goods and services, when you go to a box store or you go to a large department store, you have every certain commodity that's going to make that family or the individual keep coming back. And oftentimes in a consumeristic church, the pastor never addresses difficult issues from the pulpit uh, because he doesn't want to offend. He wants the customers to be happy and keep coming back. So consumerism. Number seven, what I believe is the, the other issue that is plaguing the church today, a disease, is, is liberalism. Uh, this has always been an issue. Um, there's a denial of the inerrancy of Scripture, a denial of the sufficiency of Scripture, and this leads to um, all sorts of problems. Um, you've got a denial of sexual ethics, 
You've got people saying that you know gay marriage is okay, and the whole gay Christian movement. You've got people saying that you know we're, we're not going to really talk about the reality of hell being a place of eternal conscious torment. We're going to deny penal substitutionary atonement of Jesus on the cross, absorbing the wrath of God. Uh, there's a tend towards universalism that all paths lead to God, and there's also in the liberal movement. You've got this big, uh, big buzzword, uh, missional or kingdom work. Uh, we're going to do things for the kingdom. And so the kingdom has been flattened down to doing anything uh, to help people. So social justice is kingdom work. Um, and so there's an abandonment of evangelism or the gospel or the need to repent and believe. And so everything comes under this umbrella of let's just do things for the kingdom of making life a better place on earth. And so some key players in this obviously are, are Rob Bell. I mean, Rob Bell was a pastor of a megachurch in Michigan, and for many years, most people would consider him years back to be solid, to be evangelical, to be conservative. Um, he had these NUMA videos that came out that were a little bit questionable, and then over time, his book Velvet Elvis, and then Love Wins, and then now he's full-blown, basically abandoned. Uh, inerrancy, he's abandoned all the, basically, I would believe, the cardinal truths of Christianity. He's aligned himself with Oprah, and so he's an example of a, of a, of a quote-unquote pastor that would still be considered Christian, but is, is basically the poster child for liberal Christianity. Another key player is Matthew Vines. Matthew Vines is a young man who is basically a gay Christian who's trying to go on a crusade to um, help churches understand that it's, to, to, re, to reinterpret or revision this history of what the Bible says about uh, sexual ethics. Uh, you have Rachel Held Evans, Shane Claiborne, Tony Campolo, um, other people who have basically abandoned Orthodox Christianity and have engaged in uh, this liberal theology. So if you look at these seven big categorical diseases, pragmatism, if it works, no matter what it is, let's do it because all we care about are the results. Mysticism, it's all about looking inside of me for the answers. These, this mystical type of experiences. Gnosticism, secret knowledge, delving into new types of spirituality. Psychotherapeutism, it's all about psychology and therapy and making me feel good about myself. Consumerism, let's keep the customer happy, so let's just give them what they want. And then liberalism, a denial of the cardinal truths of Christianity. Now, I want to give you a quote that I think crystallizes this issue. Uh, quote, the fundamental fault of the modern church is that she is busily engaged in an absolutely impossible task. She is busily engaged in calling the righteous to repentance. Modern preachers are trying to bring men into the church without requiring them to relinquish their pride. They're trying to help men avoid the conviction of sin. The preacher gets up in the pulpit, opens the Bible, and addresses the congregation as follows. You people are very good, he says. You respond to every appeal that looks toward the welfare of the community. And I want you to guess when those words were written. Who do you, when do you think that that was, that was spoken of? That was written in 1923 by J. Gresham Machen in his famous book, Christianity and liberalism, 1923, almost 90 years ago, but it's so poignant to what's happening today. So we have got what I would call ecclesiastical confusion. 
we've got some confusion in our evangelical world today about the nature of the church. And we have all of these issues plaguing the church. And so the question that we've really got to ask is, number one, what has God called the church to be? And then number two, what has God called the church to do? Two very fundamental questions that I think the church needs to answer. And so let's explore the first issue, which is really one of identity. Who are we as the local church? Why do we exist as a local church? And so let me put it into a sentence for you. Um, This is what I believe the scripture teaches about the identity of the local church. We are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, and a treasured possession to display God's glory to a watching world. This is often called the purpose statement of the church, and it really answers the why question. Why, why do we exist? What's our reason for being? What's our identity? And we need to start with the identity and purpose of the church is totally God-centered, not man-centered, in that it focuses on the truth that, number one, we exist, first and foremost, to display God's glory. It's all about God's glory from first to last. Now, I want to show this definition of what the church is by looking at it from two angles. I think it's interesting to look about at the identity of the church from the Old Testament. What did God call the Old Testament people, the Israelites, to be? What was their identity? And then when we look at the New Testament, then how does God flesh that out? How does God in redemptive history build upon the identity of the Old Testament people and flesh that out in the identity of the New Testament people? And as we look at these two identities of the Old Testament people and what the Bible says about the New Testament, I think we can combine both of these together to give us a comprehensive picture of who we are as God's people. So what was the identity of the Old Testament people of God, the Israelites. And and I think the foundational passage that addresses that is um, Exodus 19. God has delivered the Israelites out of Egyptian bondage. He's done this by the blood of a Passover lamb. He's redeemed them by his outstretched hand, giving them victory through the Red Sea. He's provided manna for them every morning. He's given them water from the rock. He's defeated the Amalekite army that was attacking them. And, and the setup here is there at the base of Mount Sinai, the famous mountain of God. And Moses goes up to receive the Ten Commandments. And we find these crucial words in Exodus 19, verses 3 through 6. So let's listen to what the word of the Lord says. When Moses went up to God, the Lord called him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. What God does here is to show Israel their identity 
but he also shows how their identity would also serve as the foundation for their mission. And what God does in these passages is he gives really two overarching descriptions of Israel's identity. He says in verse 6, you will be a, number one, a kingdom of priests, and number two, a holy nation. And so in other words, we could, we could sum this up by saying that Israel was to be priestly and Israel was to be holy. Now, let's, let's unpack these. What does it mean for Israel to be priestly? And what does it mean for Israel to be holy? Well, let's talk about priestly. They were to be a kingdom of priests. And we have to go back and look at the historical context of the nation of Israel. What did the priests do? God set up the Levitical priesthood under Aaron and his sons to do some very specific things in the life of the nation. Uh, two primary things that the, the priests were to do. Number one, the priests were responsible for teaching the law of God to the people, ministering the word. And secondly, they were instrumental as mediators of substitutionary atonement to propitiate God's wrath against the sin of the people. So you saw two major functions of a priest. It was a word-centered ministry related to God's law, and it was a substitutionary atonement sacrificial-centered ministry of the sacrificial system. So you have word ministry and you have sacrificial system. That was the role of the priest individually. But God here says corporately to the entire nation, you are, a, as a nation, a kingdom of priests, plural. And so really what God's saying to Israel is, collectively Israel, as a people, you are to fulfill this priestly role, not only to, the, to, to yourself as your identity, but also to the nations. In other words, Israel, you are to reflect God's glory in such a way that you faithfully, number one, obeyed the word. It was a word-centered reality. And number two, you demonstrate to the nations what the sacrificial system is all about in order to forgive sins. And so there's two huge things here that Israel was to be about. They were to be about the word and they were to be about the sacrifice, the need for atonement. And so when you look at Israel's identity, two pillars are at the center of their identity, the word of God and the need for sins to be forgiven through the sacrificial system. And they were to demonstrate this to the watching world so that the pagan nations around them would see that Yahweh, the God of Israel, was a God who spoke a word that absolutely needed to be obeyed and God forgives sin through a blood sacrifice. So that's the first issue of being priestly. Israel was called to demonstrate in their life, in their nation, the reality of the word of God and the sacrificial system of blood sacrifice. Now, in addition to being a kingdom of priests, Israel was to live out the ethical demands of being a holy nation. A holy nation. And so we have to address that question. What is a holy nation? Well, a holy nation means that they were to live out the ethical demands of what it meant to be faithful to God's law. In other words, they were to be a nation of obedience, a nation set apart, a nation that lived according to the mandate of how God called them to live. 
And so when you look at these two issues, priestly and holy, Israel's overall identity and mission really entailed this, that they were to be God's representative on earth to the world, to the nations, by reflecting the very character and nature of God. A character and nature that demanded allegiance to His Word and a character that demanded justice against sin be satisfied by substitutionary atonement. So part and parcel of Israel's identity and mission involved fidelity to God's Word in the law, is living a distinct lifestyle according to the ethical demands of God's law to the nations around them that they would be distinct. And number two, elevating the need for forgiveness of sins through atonement. Now I want you to think about those two things. The word of God being central and the need for a substitutionary atonement. And I believe in essence those two same dynamics hold true for God's people today. We are to be priestly and holy in the sense that we as a church are to be a distinct people who hold out the word of God to a lost world around us showing everyone's need for the substitutionary atonement and the cross of Christ. And so when you look at the identity and mission of the Old Testament people and you translate that to what the church is supposed to be today, it is a word-centered reality and a cross-centered reality. One commentator has given a description of the Old Testament nation of Israel, and I love the way he puts it. He says, quote, Israel as a holy people are to be a people set apart, different from all the other people by what they are and are becoming. And this is what I love. He says, a display people, a showcase to the world of how being in covenant with Yahweh changes a people. I love his expression there. A display people, a showcase people. Really, that's what we are as a church. We are a display people. We are a showcase people who live in such a way that we show the world around us that being in covenant relationship with Christ changes us. In the sense, how does it change us? It means that our entire life is oriented around the Word of God and the cross of Christ. Just as the nation of Israel was priestly and holy, we too are priestly and holy. And really the main issue for Israel was God did not necessarily give the nation of Israel a mandate to go out to the nations and evangelize. We don't ever really see a specific mandate in the Old Testament for Israel to go to the nations with the gospel. The only real example we see is where God sends Jonah to go. He's the only prophet that ever ministered outside of Israel. He was called to go to the pagan nation of Assyria to preach judgment to the Ninevites, and God saved the Gentiles through that type of cross-cultural evangelism in Jonah. But for the most part, in the Old Testament, it was not a go-to-the-nations type of mentality or mandate for the Old Testament people of God. It was more of a come and see. Come see this people, this display people. Uh, it, it was more of a, we are to be distinct, we are to be, um, the Old Testament people were to be this, uh, as Isaiah 42, 6 says, Isaiah 42, 6 says, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness, I will take you by the hand and keep you, I will give you as a covenant for the people, as a light for the nations. 
So Israel was to be a light for the nations in the sense that they weren't necessarily to go to the nations with evangelism or cross-cultural mission. They were to more just be a light in the sense that as their identity, as a holy and priestly nation, as a distinct nation, they were to be a display people, a come and see. Come see us, see how we're distinct, see how we're different from the Ninevites, see how we're different from the Philistines, see how we're different from uh, the Egyptians. And so in redemptive history... God's plan for Israel was to be more of a come and see. Now, we have to look at that and say, well, in the flow of redemptive history, when we get to the New Testament, that's not enough. That's just half of the picture. Yes, I would argue, and I will argue in just a moment, we are to be a display people. We are to be holy. We are to be a light to the world. But it doesn't just stop there. We've got the rest of the New Testament, and we've got the mandate of Christ, where it becomes a not only a come and see, but a go and tell. But I think that if you go to the New Testament, you can see how, especially the Apostle Peter, links the Old Testament identity of the nation of Israel to the New Testament identity of us as the church and really fleshes it out. And so the key passage of Scripture is 1 Peter 2.9. And, and Peter is writing to um, elect Gentiles that are scattered around Asia Minor. And so he takes a lot of the descriptions that God gives in the scriptures, in the Old Testament scriptures, to define the nation of Israel. And he fleshes that out and, and basically um, gives those definitions to the New Testament church. And so let's read 1 Peter 2.9. But you, and that's, that's plural there in the Greek, you all, y'all, if you're from the South, you guys, you collectively are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I want you to see the similarities. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Do you not hear the echoes of what God told Moses in Exodus 19? And so what Peter does here is Peter gives four titles of honor really for the church, four titles of dignity, four titles of honor that harken back to Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, harken back to the, the Pentateuch, the first five books that really show how we as God's people today are in that same stream of what God had called the Old Testament people to be. And so the first title of honor given to us as the church is that we are a chosen race. God has chosen us in sovereign grace to be His people. And one of the things we've got to realize as being a chosen race is that God did not choose us because we were all that. He didn't choose us because we were good. He didn't choose us because we were intelligent, because we were super spiritual, because we were more sensitive, because we were wise, because we were beautiful, because there was anything of merit in us. As a matter of fact, the scripture basically teaches that we're rebellious sinners who are hostile to God. We are warped, we're depraved, we're royally messed up, and there's no reason that God would be obligated to choose us. And so the question then becomes, well, then why did God choose us? And the biblical answer is God chose us because he wanted to choose us. There was nothing in us that moved God to choose us. There was nothing that in us that motivated or obligated God to choose us. He simply did it sovereignly out of his own good pleasure and will to choose us as his people and to grant us eternal life. This harkens back to Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 8. God says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. 
The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any of the other peoples that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God simply says, the reason I've chosen you, Israel, because I have the right to choose you, and it comes out of my love. That's the same answer for us. Why does God choose us for salvation? Simply because he wants to, and he has the right to do so because of his love. Now, secondly, Peter describes us as a royal priesthood. Now, we've, just, we've seen this, how it worked out in the Old Testament, that we are a, a royal priesthood. And then he says, you're a holy nation. Again, set apart to be distinctly different. That comes from Leviticus 19.2. Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. The fourth title of honor that Peter gives us is that we are God's treasured possession. Again, it comes from Deuteronomy 14.2. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And I think it's interesting, the word that Peter uses there, possession, really has many nuanced meanings in the Greek language. It really means to be bought at a valuable price. When we think about the cross there, Christ has bought us with the price of his blood, but it also carries the idea that God preserves us. He keeps us. He holds us tightly in his grip. The same word, possession, is used elsewhere in the New Testament to really speak of Jesus buying us with his blood. And so when you look at what Peter does here in 1 Peter 2.9, a vital connection exists between the identities of the Old Covenant people, as we saw in Exodus 19, which has now through redemptive history been fleshed out in who we are as a church. And so instead of today, us as a church simply being a display people for pagans to come and see, which is very, very important, the identity and mission of the church really involves us now moving out with the advancement of the gospel to the nations. Because what does Peter say? If you go back to that text in First Peter, you, he, 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 in that passage of scripture, he links identity with mission. The first half of the verse, you are, this is identity, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That is who you are, church. But then he's got that. That little Greek uh, qualifier there, that, so that, purpose, purpose clause. Okay, so what does our identity mean for us? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That turns on mission. Okay, then what's the mission? If our identity is that we're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, then what's our mission? Our mission is that, so that, purpose, you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, that you may proclaim the excellencies. It really leads to proclamation. It leads to mission of worship, mission of preaching, to proclaim the excellencies. And that word proclaim here, it's really the only time it's used in the scriptures. And the word proclaim there means to publish abroad, to advertise, to publicly declare. In other words, we're not silent about the excellencies of God. We are to boldly and publicly announce, declare, tell of His excellencies. 
What are the excellencies of God? That's an interesting word. Well, it's, it's really a catch-all word that talks about the, the entirety of who God is and His acts of power and His sovereignty and His salvation. Uh, and so when we think about what is the most excellent thing that God has done that we need to publish abroad, that really is the gospel. It's really just another way of saying your goal, your role as a church is to live and proclaim and publish abroad the glory of God in the gospel of God. In other words, it links worship and witness. We're to be worshipers, giving God glory with our lives, but also to be witnesses, to, to tell of His glory, to announce the acts of God in salvation. And so the first thing that we look at is, okay, what's the identity of the church? What is really our identity? Ecclesia is the word for church in the, in the Greek language, and it comes from two words, ek, out of, the, the preposition out of, kaleo, the called out ones. And so the church are those who've been called out. Called out of what? We've been called out of darkness into God's marvelous light so that we may proclaim his excellencies as a royal priesthood, as a treasured possession. And so we are this um, God-glorifying, gospel-centered, Christ-fixated, scripture-saturated, spirit-empowered, called-out people who are solely involved in the glory of God and the gospel of God. And so we need to go back and look at, okay, if that's our identity, that's who God has called us to be, a holy nation, to be holy, to be priestly, to be a display people, to proclaim His excellencies, then we've got to ask another foundational question. Okay, what exactly establishes and dictates the mission of God's people? Okay, so we've got our identity down as a church. Okay, what are we supposed to do? What's our mission? And there's a lot of confusion. If you looked at those those seven categorical diseases that are plaguing the church, you know, everybody now is talking about mission. You got to be missional. You got to do mission. The church needs to be on mission. And we talk so much about mission that I think that everything becomes mission. And we lose exactly what the mission of the church is to be. And often people are driven by fads and marketing. They're driven by pragmatic man-centered techniques. Uh, they're driven by the particular whims of a pastor's hobby horse. And so we have to say, okay, what is a church supposed to really then do then? Well, let me give you my thesis. Let me give you my answer. The Word of God dictates and establishes the priorities and mission of the church. And there's an awesome quote by John Stott that I just, John Stott, I really loved a lot of his writings, especially as a, as a practical theologian. Um, his book, Between Two Worlds on Preaching, is excellent. And listen to what John Stott says. He says, quote, The church is the creation of God by His Word. Not only has God brought it into being by His Word, but he also maintains and sustains it, directs and sanctifies it, reforms and renews it through that same word. The word of God is the scepter by which Christ rules the church and the food by which he nourishes it. Awesome quote. 
God has brought the church into existence by his word. We didn't just come up with the church. We're not just gathering together because it's a cool thing to do. God in his sovereignty has called us into being and he directs us by his word. And I love the imagery that John Stott says there. The word of God is the scepter. Now what's a scepter? It's the, 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 the image here that Christ is ruling the church with the kingly scepter. Christ is the head of the church. He's the senior pastor of the church. And he's ruling the church. He's leading the church as the king with the scepter of his word. But the imagery that John Stott also says is that he feeds it. The church is fed by the word of God. It's nourished. And so we have this double imagery that Jesus as the senior pastor of the church is ruling us by the word and he's feeding us by the word. And so any type of ministry or any type of identity or any type of mission that does not have Christ as the senior pastor ruling and feeding the church through the word of God is faulty. It's on shallow ground. It's going to sink. And so the only way a church can faithfully fulfill its mission is fidelity to the word of Christ. Paul says it this way in 2 Timothy 3, 16-17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, there's a lot that can be said in that passage of Scripture. It teaches the authority of Scripture. It teaches the inspiration of Scripture. But I want you to notice the word profitable. All Scripture is breathed out and is profitable. In other words, the Scripture is the only authority. It's the sufficient authority. Everything that a church does must go through the filter of the authority and sufficiency of God's Word. And so faithful proclamation, teaching, preaching of the Word of God stands as the center of the church's primary mandate. And so if your church is not characterized by sound biblical expository preaching and teaching as the centerpiece of all that the church does, it is not being faithful to God as a church. So I get very concerned when we look at these um, pragmatism. When we look at, we're going to downplay preaching. We're not going to talk about the Word of God. We're going to get mystical. We're going to get you know, all these, these things that basically give lip service to the Word of God but deny its sufficiency. Most evangelicals are not going to deny the inspiration of the Word of God. If you, if you sit down and talk to these leaders of these movements that I just listed earlier, and you say, hey, do you believe the Bible? Oh, yeah, we believe the Bible. Do you believe the Bible is the inspired Word of God? Oh, yeah, I believe the Bible is the inspired Word of God. Do you believe the Bible is authority? Oh, oh yeah, we need, to, we need to live by the authority of the Bible. They're going to give lip service to that. But then when you ask a deeper question, let's ask them this question. Do you believe the Bible is sufficient to dictate and establish how you do church, how you do ministry. That's the real question you've got to ask because that is where you're going to get the, the distinction. They may give lip service to the authority of Scripture, lip service to the inspiration, but when it comes to the sufficiency, in other words, does the Scripture dictate and establish to me exactly how I'm going to do church? Or am I going to be driven by pragmatism? Am I going to be driven by consumerism? Am I going to be driven by Gnosticism or mysticism or psychotherapeutism or, or revivalism? Uh, the sufficiency of Scripture. And so let's just, again, again, we've looked at identity. What's the church's identity? We've looked at the Word of God establishing the, the mandate and mission for the church. But let's just ask the third question. What, what are we commissioned to be doing? Okay, what is the church to do? 
Well, this is the mission church mission the mission statement of, of my church, Emmanuel Baptist Church, and, and and I'm not saying it's perfect, but I do believe there are three primary mandates that all churches are to be about. And we've kind of captured these in our church in our mission statement. And so let me give it to you. Three things. We exist to, number one, display God's glory. Number two, declare God's gospel. And number three, disciple for God's great commission. Three things. God's glory, God's gospel, God's great commission. And so, first of all, we are to display God's glory. We are to magnify and exalt God in every area of our lives. Um, God has created the community of faith. God has created the church. And our greatest privilege as a church is to glorify Him. And so as a church, we're not driven by pragmatism. We're not driven by popular opinion. We're not driven by passing fads. The thing that we're driven by as a church, and the question we ask is, what brings the most honor and glory to God and is faithful to his word. So the highest aim of a church body in all that we do, all that we say, all that we minister, everything about us is this. Does it magnify? Does it honor? Does it bring glory to God alone? Isaiah 6, 3. The, the seraphim were calling back to one another as Isaiah sees the Lord exalted on the throne of the temple. And they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. That's the God we worship, the thrice, the three times holy God whose glory is extended throughout the whole earth. Psalm 96, 3 through 9, declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. What a powerful psalm. Psalm 96. That's the goal of the church. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Declare his glory among the nations. Why has God saved us? Why has God called us into existence as a church? Why has God done it? Is it to make much of us? Is it so that we can be the center of attention? Is it so that we can have our felt needs met? Paul's very clear. In Ephesians 1, 3-14, the longest sentence in the New Testament, Paul erupts in this joyous um, expression of praise, and it's linked together in this one huge long sentence. But I want you to notice, I'm not going to get into all the theology here, but I want you to notice a repeated theme, because Paul addresses election, predestination, redemption, the fact that he's given us the Holy Spirit, the forgiveness of sins, all of these things. But listen three times, the refrain that's used in this passage. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. Here's the first one, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. 
In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works out all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to, number two, the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, and until we acquire possession of it, number three, to the praise of His glory. A Trinitarian passage. It talks about the Father electing us, the Son redeeming us, the Holy Spirit sealing us, and in this Trinitarian passage that deals with the totality of the glory of our salvation, the refrain three times, Paul says, is God has done all this for the praise of His glory. Everything is about His glory glory. Romans 12.1, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Worship. God's glory is the central task, the central purpose, the central mission of the church of God. Way before evangelism, way before missions, before anything, worship, the glory of God, stands at the center of the life of the church. 1 Corinthians 10.31, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Colossians 3.17, And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So number one, it all starts with, what are we supposed to do? Well, out of our identity is the called out royal priesthood, the holy nation, God's treasured possession, the church that he's called into being. The first and foremost thing we are to do is to display God's glory. It's all about God. It's not about us. It starts with God's glory. But secondly, we are to declare God's gospel. The gospel must be at the center of the life of the church and something we are to boldly declare Paul says in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes to the Jew first and to the Greek. The word gospel simply means good news. It's the wonderful announcement of what God has done for sinners in the person and work of Jesus Christ. All people are born in this world under the curse of sin. All people are born dead in sin, under the guilt of sin under condemnation because of Adam and Eve who disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden. As a result of Adam's sin, every single human has inherited his guilt, his sin nature. We find that in Romans 5.12 and we stand condemned. Our sins need to be paid for. The Bible describes us as dead in sin. The Bible describes us as being under God's wrath in Ephesians 2.1. The Bible describes us as being blinded by Satan. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, the Bible says that we're under God's wrath. Jesus tells us in John 3.36, the Bible tells us the wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23, that we all deserve to die. That every single person deserves justice, deserves wrath, and God has the sovereign right to punish every single one of us for our sin. Because we're alienated against Him, we're hostile enemies, we are lawbreakers, we're in bondage to sin, we're in need of supernatural redemption. But Romans 5.8 says, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, 
Christ died for us. So God in His grace sent Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, the God-man, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life of obedience to the Father, perfectly obeyed the Father in thought, word, and deed, and was crucified on the cross, died a sacrificial death for sinners. Jesus accomplished some wonderful things on the cross for us. He died as a sacrificial lamb in our place to take the punishment for the, the sin that we deserve. He absorbed the wrath of God. He propitiated God's wrath against sin in our place. He reconciled us as enemies to the Father, brought us into a relationship of peace. He purchased our salvation. He redeemed us by His blood so that we could be redeemed or bought out of slavery to sin. He cried out, it is finished. And three days later, He rose from the grave, conquering sin and death for our justification. He's ascended to the Father in heaven. He's alive today as the one mediator between God and man. He's the only way of salvation John 14.6 and Acts 4.12. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the most important event in all of history and that it is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ according to the scriptures. And the, and the gospel commands all people everywhere to repent of their sins and put their entire trust in Christ alone for salvation. And this is a free gift of grace that cannot be earned or cannot be merited. It's all of grace, not of works, as Ephesians 2.8 and 9 tell us. And the Bible says all who confess their sin repent of their ungodliness, trust in Christ alone, will be saved. And when God grants you the gift of faith and you exercise your faith in Christ, God justifies you by declaring you not guilty in His sight because your sins have been imputed to Christ and His righteousness has been imputed to you. And all true believers can never experience condemnation and by God's grace will persevere to the end and never lose their salvation. That's the message of the gospel. That's got to be central to the life of the church. So if your church does not preach propitiation, if your church does not preach penal substitutionary atonement, if your church does not preach bondage to sin, if your church does not preach that mankind is guilty and in need of a Savior, if your church does not preach repentance unto salvation, if your church does not preach justification by faith alone, then then you are not being a gospel-centered church. And so the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. And so, so the first thing we see that a church is supposed to do is to display God's glory. But the second thing is to declare God's gospel. But thirdly, to disciple for God's great commission. God is very clear in giving us the great commission. We're all familiar with it. Matthew 28 18 through 20, Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is Matthew's version of the Great Commission, but I want to draw your attention. What's the main verb in this passage has often been misunderstood. Most people look at this and think, well, the main verb must be go. Go is in an imperative, so uh, we, 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 must, we need to get going. We need to go. Go is not the main verb. Actually, the main verb is make disciples. 
That's the main verb that Jesus commands us to do. It's a command, make disciples. But then he gives us three qualifiers, three participles in the original language that really modify or define what making disciples looks like. And so the first is going. Not necessarily in the imperative go, but really could be translated as you are going. So Jesus assumes that you're going. In your daily life, in the natural ebb and flow of your life, in your relationships, in, in your life, you are engaging people. You are going. You're not sitting still. You have an intentionality. You are desiring to make disciples. The second thing, the second participle, is baptizing. Baptizing. Uh, uh, one of the things that we need to understand as a church is that if you're not, um, a church is made up of baptized believers. Those who have verbally and publicly identified themselves with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in the waters of baptism by immersion in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as a symbol of showing what God has done. And so part of making disciples is obviously you've got to evangelize. You've got to tell, declare the gospel. And once a person trusts Christ for salvation, the first act of obedience is baptism in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, going under the water as a symbol of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, but also as an illustration of the death of your old life and being raised to newness of life. And so making disciples involves baptizing believers. And, and that's not just a privatized individualistic thing that you do over here on the side, but it really um, speaks of incorporating a person into the full life of the church, bringing them into fellowship of the body. But then the third participle is teaching. And sometimes we just we stop there, teaching, teaching generically. That's not what Jesus says. Do you, do you understand what he says in the Great Commission? Teaching them to observe or obey or hold fast to all that he's commanded. So it's not just teaching for information. It's teaching for transformation. It's teaching for obedience. It's teaching so that disciples will be not just hearers of the word, but doers. You know, one of the verses that's really shaped my role as a pastor and really helped me understand the mission of the church and my role as a pastor is, is Colossians 1, 28-29. Paul says, Him, Jesus, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. There, there's a lot we see in this passage as the role of a pastor, as the role of a church. Him we proclaim. It's proclamation. It's preaching. Preaching Christ, proclamation, preaching, expository preaching is at the center of the life of a pastor. Him we proclaim. And then warning everyone. That deals more with um, challenging a person's behavior, dealing with sin issues, calling them to repentance, and then teaching everyone with all wisdom. And so you're instructing, you're teaching for transformation, you're teaching for obedience, but what's the end goal? What does Paul say? Why am I preaching? Why am I warning? Why am I teaching? What's the goal of a pastor? What's, what's really the, the, the ultimate goal in making disciples in the life of the church? Well, he says that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That should be the ultimate goal of your pastor, of me as a pastor, of the life of your church. Are we as a church, do we have our goal as a church that we are, by the power of the Holy Spirit, attempting to present everyone mature in Christ? And Paul says, I, I struggle with this. I toil with this. That's a hard thing. 
it's a whole lot easier to deal with pragmatism. Hey, whatever works, let's do it. There's not a lot of hard work in pragmatism. Uh, revivalism, let's get people to sign a card and make a decision. Let's get people to sign on the dotted line. Consumerism, let's just get people to keep coming. Those things are pretty easy if you have enough marketing, if you have enough money, if you have enough talent. But to truly present everyone mature in Christ by preaching Jesus, by warning, by teaching, by discipling, that is hard work. That takes the long haul. That means the church needs to be serious about making disciples. And Paul says, I struggle. I toil. But here's the beauty. I toil and struggle with his energy that he powerfully works within me. We're not left to our own resources. God promises if, if we are serious about making disciples, if we are serious about presenting everyone mature in Christ, we have the power of the Holy Spirit working in us to do that. And it takes time, it takes energy, it takes investment. It's not just some quick pragmatic fix. It's not a program. This involves life on life, deep relationships, deep teaching, sound theology, getting in one another's lives, making disciples. And that's what the mandate of the church is, making disciples. You know, the Great Commission is also uh, referenced in other Gospels. Mark sixteen fifteen, he said to them, Jesus, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Preach the gospel to everyone in creation. Luke 24, 46 to 47. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day and rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed, should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. It's amazing how in almost every one of the uh, commandments of the Great Commission, it involves preaching, proclaiming. And yet pastors in our day and churches in our day want to downplay preaching. We want to talk about preaching. Preaching is offensive, but let's talk about dialoguing. Let's talk about conversations. Let's talk about um, having small groups, fireside chats. And, and this whole idea of the authority of the pastor, the authoritative preaching of the word, uh, you look at the book of Acts, and that's all they did. They authoritatively preached the gospel in obedience to what Christ has called us to do. Uh, John twenty twenty one. Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. God, or Jesus is sending us to do what? He's sending us into the world, to go into the world, to make disciples, to preach the gospel, to baptize, to teach for obedience. And we do that in the power of the Holy Spirit. Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So when you think about the life of the church, with all the confusion that's around, what's our identity? We are the called out people of God. We are his treasured possession. We are a holy nation. We are a kingdom of priests. And we exist to proclaim his excellencies. And so that involves three major things in the life of the church. Well, number one, we are to display God's glory. Number two, we are to declare God's gospel. And number three, we are to disciple for God's great commission. So you need to evaluate your current church. If you're listening to this and you're in a church, ask some hard questions. Or if you're a pastor listening to this and you're evaluating the life of your church, ask these questions. Is my church primarily driven by pragmatism? In other words, am I driven by if it works, no matter what it is, we're going to do it because all we care about are numbers. All we care about are results. I'm driven by pragmatism. Is my church primarily driven by mysticism? 
Is it all about these deep mystical experiences and looking inside of myself for answers and, and not relying on the sufficiency of Scripture, but trying to find the most mystical experience I can find? Is my church primarily driven by Gnosticism? Am I so into this deep knowledge, this secret knowledge of delving into new types of spiritualities or getting on such and such bandwagon and, and, and thinking that we're the only ones that have the truth? Is my church primarily driven by psychotherapeutism? Are you driven by meeting people's felt needs and, and stroking their self-esteem and, and dealing into psychology and therapy? Is that what you're driven by? Is your church dr driven by revivalism? Do, do you use manipulative techniques? Do you use man-centered theology to produce evangelistic results? Are you, are you trying to drum up um, decisions for Christ and, as opposed to rely upon the power of the Holy Spirit? Is your church primarily driven by consumerism? Uh, what keeps the customer happy we need to keep doing, so let's just give them what they want. Is your church driven by liberalism? Those are some questions you've got to ask. Or, fundamentally, is my church primarily driven by God's glory, God's gospel, and God's great commission? That's the bottom line. I thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. This has been a fun topic to talk about because it's near and dear to my heart, the, the identity and mission of the church. And I pray that you're in a church that takes these things seriously. Um, if you are under teaching and preaching that you consider suspect or you're in a situation where maybe these seven things are prevalent in your church, um, I would ask that you pray for wisdom on how to address it. I'm not saying that you need to leave your church immediately, but um, if they have elders or they have a leadership structure, I think you need to go and address those issues and do it kindly and gently and biblically. Um, and I think it's very important for you to evaluate your current situation and see if you are in a church that practices uh, biblical theology. Uh, again, this is Understanding Christianity with Pastor Sean Cole. Thank you for listening. You can contact me on my website, seancole.net. You can find out all my contact information there. I'd love to hear from you. Um, and I just pray that you have a great day. I pray that uh, you are involved in a church or you're part of a church or you are a leader in a church uh, that's primarily driven by God's glory, God's gospel, and God's great commission.